0: This is David Suiza, welcome to my podcast. Today we have my good friend Howard Rosenman, a um, Hollywood producer for many years, a lover of Israel, and a Academy Award winner for his latest film, Call Me By Your Name. He's done all kinds of amazing films over the years from Sparkle, The Main Event, Lost Angels, Father of the Bride, A Stranger Among Us, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in all kinds of movies, and I've seen, I think, most of them. Also well known for his film, Common Threads, Stories from the Quilt, that won the Peabody Award, and the 1990 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, as well as the film, The Celluloid Closet, that also won the Peabody Award. Delightful to have you
1: here. Howard, my good friend Howard. Thank you so much. My great <laughs> friend David Suiza. Yeah, it's it's
0: interesting not to see you at a Shabbat table because <laughs> every time I see <laughs> I you or to across. see you not
1: speaking to a gigantic audience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. Usually there's like glasses of wine and lots and lots of great food and we're smoozing and here we are in our Jewish journal studio. But it's it's just there's so much to talk about. Yeah. The 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 thing that's top of mind for me is this film that you talked about for so long when you would come over for Shabbat, Call Me By Your Name. And I saw it from the beginning. You were so excited about getting the rights to a book. And then so often in Hollywood, things don't come to fruition. They're just dreams that stay dreams. And in your case, I saw this dream over the years come to the point where you won an Academy Award (laughs) for best screenplay, and then you travel the world for more awards. So tell us about that
1: experience with that film. Uh, Eleven years ago, I was acting in the movie Milk uh, that Gus Van Sant was directing, and I got a call from a good friend of mine uh, in New York and Israeli um, who said to me, Andre Asiman, uh, who wrote Call Me By Her Name, I had read a book of his called Out of Egypt about his Sephardic Alexandrian Jewish roots, which I loved, and he knew that. So Andre called up Gill because he knew that Gil knew me and said, I want Howard Roseman to read my book in manuscript. So I read the book. I was bowled over by it, and then uh, the next morning, my good friend Peter Spears, who I had produced John from Cincinnati with, called me and said, I just read this book, Howard. I said, call me by your name. He couldn't believe that I said that, and we both decided to produce it together, and the next uh, day, we called the agent and started negotiating for the rights, and that was 11 years ago. Wow. And then how did it feel that night? when the Academy Award was announced. It was one of the most spectacular uh, evenings of my life because it was nominated for four awards. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, uh, Best Song, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And James Ivory wrote the screenplay. And um, a lot of people were telling us that he was going to win. And so, like... When it happened, I was shocked. (laughs) And it was just mind-boggling. But
0: the film lingers. I mean, it's like it hasn't just come
1: and gone, right? Yeah, it's it's a phenomenon. In fact, I think Harvard or Yale is having a course on the marketing of this movie. Because it was such an unexpected phenomenon. Because, you know, when I started out, I thought we were going to make a little gay movie. But if you saw the movie, there's a scene with the father at the end talking to his son when the— parents realize that the son's having a gay relationship in the middle of the summer. And he says to his son, treasure this moment. It's the only time you're ever going to have a first love. I wish I had done it when I had the chance. And it gave me goosebumps. And I said to myself, "That's my father wasn't that way with me when he found out that I was gay. He was a tough, macho sabra. We, we, we eventually uh, connected and got along, but it was tough growing up in an Orthodox Jewish uh, world. My father was Israeli, seven generations born in Mayasharim, as was my mother. And um, so my father wasn't like that. And I said to myself, you know, everyone's going to want a father like that. Gay, straight, Chinese, African-American, everyone. And that's going to make this movie transcend and have real, real resonance among the world. And that's exactly what happened. And me and Peter, you know, uh, who, who did a lot of the heavy lifting uh, because his husband is Brian Swartstrom, who's an agent uh, who represents Tilda Swinton, who worked with Luca Guadagnino for many years. And we originally went to Luca to be the location manager 11 years ago. Now, now Howard, you withheld from
0: me that there's a star of David throughout most of the film. Yes. When I went to see it with Albert, yes. we're like looking at each other. There's a star of David. Of course, because they're two Jews. In Je- almost 80% of the film, he yes. was wearing one right. on his neck. Because it's about two Jewish And I'm boys. thinking, I can't believe Howard wouldn't even you know, tell me that. <laughs> but But speaking of Jewish, I remember when they asked me to introduce you for an award at the JQ event, and I was thinking, I don't know, you know, what am I gonna say? And I, and the thing that just inspired me to say was, here is someone who has gone through, really the humiliation of being in a religion that has oppressed uh, homosexuals for centuries, right? That, and yet he still loves his Judaism. He loves his Shabbat. He loves his Torah. No one's taking that away from him. And I thought this is the thing that moved me the most about you is you had every reason to say, oh, my God, you know, these rabbis are rejecting, you know, people like me. And how dare they? And I'm gone. You never said I'm gone from Judaism. And this is the thing that's moved me the most about you. You come to Shabbat table and you say, no one's taken this away from me, (laughs) you know. Yeah. And you've kept your connection to a religion that hasn't
1: been that kind over the years. No. No. But, you know, listen, I wrapped myself up in the Israeli flag after I served in the Israeli army in 1967. I was a hoveysh, a lone soldier, an intern. Um, And um, I'm Jewish. I'm a gay Jewish producer. That's what (laughs) defines me. And why take away one of those uh, identities? Uh, And JQ is an organization that um, cultivates the acceptance of both identities. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... The rabbis of old, the, the guys with the long white beards, I think they wrote that sentence, a man who sleepeth with a man, who lies with a man, it is an abomination. It's about exclusion. Mm-hmm. And Judaism is not about exclusion. Mm-hmm. Judaism is about something else. Judaism is about you know, bonding with the godhood and, and being a light unto the nations. It has nothing to do with exclusion. Mm-hmm. It's like the rabbinate now, the ultra-orthodox rabbinate now, with the surrogacy law. I think those people are out of their effing minds to tell you the Mm. truth and I don't like them even though my sister is an ultra-Orthodox Jew she's a Haredi we call her Haredi Freydy
0: you wrote an amazing piece in the LA Times (laughs) (laughs) on your experience at a
1: Haredi wedding exactly (laughs) it was so funny um and um you know, my father was born in Mea sharim my, my, my grandfather's grandfather started the first talis factory and the first matzah factory, first in the Old City and then in Mea Sharim. and the, the signage is still there. And my nephews, my Haredi okay. nephews, bake their matzot for Pesach at that Ma'afiah, at that bakery. Uh, and they only allow people that live in Mea to bake their matzahs there. There's wonderful, fantastic things about the Jewish tradition and now the Israeli tradition, which I love and adore. And I'm not going to let some old rabbi tell me that I can't do this or I can't do that. F-M. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Well, when we first met, I
0: remember it was almost 20 years ago, and there was so much going on in Israel. And... Really, that that was the beginning of our, of our relationship. And you've been one of, I, I call you the biggest Zionist in Hollywood, right? <laughs> so what has that been? I mean, it's not as if Israel is the most beloved name in America right now. It's become very controversial, obviously, because of the Palestinian conflict and so many things. Um, what's it been like for you being so pro-Israel in Hollywood?
1: Well, it's difficult because most of Hollywood... I'd say say 70 percent, like America, are progressives and maybe in Hollywood, maybe more.
0: And and you always, you know, the progressive would prefer the underdogs.
1: Always. And so, um, but you know something? Everybody in Hollywood knows that I uh, come from seven generations of Israelis. Uh, My grandfather's grandfather came, my grandfather's great grandfather came to Palestine in 1840 when he was 40 with eight children. I have very, very deep roots there. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cousins. My sister lives there. My parents moved back there. They're both buried there. In fact, my all my ancestry is buried on Harazaitim on the Mount of Olives. We have the best real estate on the Mount of Olives, I might add. And um, having served in the Six-Day War and then met Leonard Bernstein, who... Uh, Asked me to be a gopher on the documentary that they were making about him conducting the IPO in uh, Yehuda and Shamron, Judah and, S- and Samaria uh, for the uh, Tzahal with Isaac Stern playing the uh, violin. You know, I had a very paradoxical reaction to the um, conquering of Jerusalem. Up until that time, I wore sitzes and yarmulke. Well, I, di- I decided to wrap myself up in the flag of Israel and became what they call a right wing Zionist. I am liberal when it comes to all social issues in America and the world, pro-women, pro-abortion, pro-gay, and very liberal. But when it comes to Israel, I am- You're a hawk. A hawk, a total hawk, because I love it there. And Israel's the greatest country in the world. I just came back, I was there for gay pride, okay, three weeks ago. 500,000 gay people in Tel Aviv for seven days and nights. 100,000 of them were non-Jews who came from all over the world, and it was a big, big party. And to think that in the Middle East, in the middle of that (laughs) cauldron, there's that kind of freedom and that kind of euphoria and that kind of fun and that kind of liberality and that kind of openness. Well, for these liberals and progressives to say that Israel is a bad country, again, F <laughs> I appreciate the withholding <laughs> right. of a few letters. For, um, and uh, they don't bother me, uh, the Hollywood types, because I know too much. I know the entire history of Zionism. Give me an example, Howard, of an uncomfortable situation where
0: you're in a setting, because obviously you know everybody in Hollywood. I know that for a fact because every time I bring up your name, um, give me an example of a situation that was uncomfortable. Uh, connected to Israel in Hollywood?
1: Well, when I go to some of these fundraisers for democratic causes or for liberal causes and they start attacking Israel, um, I get up and I voice my opinion and when they start arguing with me, I just very calmly give them the facts mm-hmm. and then they're silent and mm-hmm. they shut up because they can't deal with me like any that. Of the, any big
0: names in Hollywood that you've spoken to about that? Well, Gore Vidal is the
1: famous one. Um, oh, he
0: were you friends with him?
1: I was very close to him. He oh. asked me to the secretary, his secretary, when he ran for Senate, and I was mm. very close to his lover, Howard Austin a Jew. Mm-hmm. And then he started getting really awful, and he wrote an essay in uh, I, um, the, uh, one of the uh, left-wing publications. I forget which one, The Nation, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, The Nation. And he wrote that I am the uh, needle that's gonna prick the pomposity and arrogance of the Jewish character. And it was anti-Semitic. I being you, you mean? No, I being oh, Gore Oh, right. Okay? I will prick that balloon of pomposity and arrogance because those people are awful. The Jews. Well, the Jews. And I said to him, really, Gore? I said, your ancestors were potato farmers in Ireland four generations ago. You're no aristocrat. You're just another asshole. Well, what's ir- what's ironic is that he was exhibiting the same pompous
0: arrogance that he, he was that he, he was cried. known for. Right. Hello, there we go. Yeah, uh, who in Hollywood is really the most problematic names in terms of Israel? I mean, <laughs> Roger Waters is not Hollywood, but he's a huge problem. Well,
1: Roger Waters and you know uh, now L- 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 singer Lord and Alice Walker and. Uh, Although Alice Walker's daughter is my cousin, who's my closest person in the world, and she's my muse um, uh, because she's very very understanding and she's Jewish. Her father, Mel Rosenman Leventhal, uh, married Alice Walker. I bet you a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and and now I'm very, very close to her. And she wrote a book called Black, White, and Jewish, which I'm going to turn into a series, hopefully. Um, And she's gay, and she's fabulous, and she has a son. Um, and she's... And the, she here. needs to be in the Jewish Journal. She needs to be in the Jewish Journal. I'll bring her. That can you know? be the first Abs- one you interview That's for great. But done. Yeah. Done deal. I'm we're, very, we're, very
0: close to her. We're talking to Howard Rosenman, by the way, about uh, doing interviews with his all his Hollywood friends
1: in the Jewish Journal, so look out for that. Um, and so, you know, um, listen, all the Hollywood top... I mean, there are about 15 hardcore right wing Zionists. <laughs> who are they? Adam, Berkowitz, Adam Sandler? Ro- yes, Adam Sandler, Rick Rosen, Adam Berkowitz, uh, David Lanner, um, David uh, Sussman, uh, me. Um, there are a whole bunch of them who are very stalwarts defending Israel because they know the facts. A lot of these people, they don't know the facts. Okay. like Amy fr- Pascal? I think she's Mm pro-Israel. I don't think she's anti-Israel. She's pro, Yeah, she's very pro-Israel. In fact, she went to Israel with a group of liberal women. Um, But many people who go to Israel change their minds. But then there are a whole bunch of... Oh, I did an interview for um, Tablet magazine uh, because I was honored at the Israeli embassy a month ago uh, for LGBT uh, Pride Day. Ron Dermer asked me to come in and honored me, and I gave an address, which you can actually see on the... uh, uh, Israeli embassy, uh, Washington, D.C., website. And uh, I was interviewed afterwards for Tablet Magazine, and, and the headline is, Howard Roseman says, F.U. How does a right-wing, orthodox-born, liberal Zionist exist in Hollywood today? Oscar-winning producer <laughs> exists in Hollywood today. And a lot of my progressive friends read it, and it was a very tough article, and I expressed mm-hmm. my opinion about how I felt about all the B.S. that's going on about Israel and the pinkwashing and all that horrible stuff. And a lot of my friends, progressive, close friends, called me up and said, how could you talk like that? We know you as a soft-hearted guy. I said, I'm not soft-hearted when it comes to Israel. I'm hard-hearted, okay? Because if you're not hard-hearted, you know what will happen? Let me tell you what will happen. 1933 to 1945, Poland and Germany. That's what'll happen. You know,
0: uh, you were telling me the other day about an interesting meeting you had with a very good friend of yours, who is the American ambassador to Israel, uh, Friedman. David Friedman. David
1: Friedman. Yes. I grew, uh, I grew up in five towns with him and my first cousin, Shalom Maidenbaum, and his wife are his best friends. And David Friedman was, as you know, uh, Trump's bankruptcy lawyer.
0: And you spent a few days with him recently I spent in a few Tel-A-Div. days with
1: him, yeah, last, uh, two uh, weeks ago. No, at, I saw the pictures. <laughs> at uh, Galei, um it's, a, uh, it's in Herzliya Pituach. Um, and
0: he shared with you some interesting tidbits he,
1: on a very important meeting in the Oval Office. Right, where um, he was convincing uh, Trump with uh, Tillerson and Pompeo and Kelly and Nick Haley, And um, him and Trump about uh, moving the embassy. And Tillerson, everybody was against it except Nick Haley. And everybody did their speech. And Tillerson opened up a book and read about the U.S. position for the past 15 years. And when he finished closing the book, David said to him, you finished? And he said, yeah. He said, now let me tell you where it's at. And then Trump decided to move the embassy.
0: You know, I wish I would have been a fly in the wall, but I could imagine that if I was in his shoes, one of the things I would have said would have been that one president after another made an unequivocal commitment during their com- campaign to move the embassy, not a conditional commitment. It was unconditional. You no, know, we will do it. And every time out, one whether it's Republican or Democrat, once they got into office, they changed
1: their mind and Cause signed all, the waiver. Because they're all cowards. Listen, I I'm not crazy about Trump. You know, by by far, I love what he's doing about Israel. And he 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 decided to do it. I mean, kudos to him. I'm very very uh, glad that he did it. Um, I just wish he change his way stop <laughs> <It's> tweeting <laughs> <laughs> the twitter in chief uh,
0: an, another great story that i recall over the years howard you and i is you know you you were producer for years and years and years and all of a sudden you get a call to act with sean penn in a movie and i'm thinking how do, how the hell do you do that right so please share that that story of how you went from being a Great producer to a great actor. Overnight. <laughs>
1: well, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, actually, um, Gus Van Zandt, who was casting the part of David, uh, the, the, the magazine publisher, yes, totally, who went to San Francisco in uh, 1973. He was a rich gay Jew in New York and bought The Advocate, which is a Time magazine of gay people. And he was very conservative. When he was casting that part for the movie Milk, for the movie Milk, he said to Francie Maseley, who was the casting director, get me someone that looks like Howard Rosen, that talks like Howard Rosen, that acts like Howard Roseman, that's Howard Roseman's <laughs> Because they were vibe. having trouble finding the right person. Exactly. Uh, and that has Howard Roseman's vibe. And she said, well, let's get Howard Roseman. And Gus said, well, can he act? So she calls me up and she said, have you ever acted before? I said, yes. So when I was 14, I did Henry Higgins in Hebrew in Camp Mossad and Susan Koskowitz was my <laughs> Eliza. And then she said, do you want to act? And I said, again, I'd rather poke effin' Japanese needles in my eyes than do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last f**n thing I wanna do. She said, but the director really wants you. I said, I don't have the chops to work with Sean Penn. But my best friend is a very important agent named Brian Swartstrom, who called me up, a talent agent, and said, how could you be so arrogant as not to wanna to work for Gus Van Zandt, audition for Gus Van Zandt, you'll never get the part, but at least you'll know what it's like as a producer to audition. By that time, I would made 35 movies. And so I auditioned. Um, when we're looking at the tape, Francine Maisler is looking at it and saying, oh, my God, you're brilliant. I'm going to recommend you to Gus. But he's in San Francisco now. He may meet someone in the supermarket um, and offer him the part. Don't even think about it for a month. A week later, I was lighting my first Hanukkah candle, and I get a call from Gus who says to me, Mazel Tov, Happy Purim, you got the part. I said, wrong holiday, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and and then, then th- it was the most transcendent experience of my life. Oh, then the, the first day on the set... Well, the first day on the set was unbelievable because, you know, at that point in my life, I'd made a Barbara Streisand movie, I'd made a lot of movies, and by that point in my life, as today, I'm not afraid of anything. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing phases me. I'm not afraid Once of anything.
0: Once you've done a Barbara Streisand movie. <laughs> you said it, not
1: me. <laughs> at any rate, um, I'm in my bling and my costume and my beard, and it's my first day on the set, it's the pool scene, and all of a sudden I see Sean coming down, and he has prosthesis in his ears, prosthesis in his nose, He's so committed to the part, and I am like freaked out. And for the first time since kindergarten, I am really frightened. Sean sees the fear in my eyes, and he says, Howard, I don't want you to worry about a thing. This is the first time I'm playing a gay role in the movies. I have your back. You have my back. I'm going to help you. You're going to help me, and we're going to get through this together. Oh, what a great... That's how generous Sean Penn is. What, what a wonderful... And it was a fabulous experience. I was in 10 scenes, and then since then, I've done seven or eight more movies. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm I a member of Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> I get
0: residual checks. <laughs> I heard your name the other day in the Gus Van Sant movie. Uh, it was so funny, <laughs> Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill plays
1: a uh, kind of new-agey kind of gay guy, actually, who helps, Gus, uh, who helps Joaquin Phoenix get sober. And Gus called me and said, you can see my movie and there's going to be a surprise for you. I didn't know what it was. Well, all of a sudden, Jonah is packing to go to New York, and he says to King Phoenix, I'm going to Studio 54, takes place in 1979, to hang out with Andy Warhol and Howard was, I know. <laughs> Good company. I'm oh, my here. God. I, I had no idea. I yelled. <laughs> now,
0: speaking of transcendent moments, there's one thing that happened in your career, and I I wonder how if this is one of those things that has been transcendent in your life, and it's the, uh, the Peabody Award that you want for Common Threads for those of you who don't remember, who are too young to remember those crazy, crazy years during when the AIDS crisis first hit America. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, Common Threads is about the AIDS quilt, and um, the Names Project is a project that uh, creates quilts for every person that died of AIDS or HIV. It's six feet by three feet, the size of a coffin, and it inscribes your name People sew the quilt. Quilting is a very American thing, you know, you know, Betsy Ross. And on the quilt is your personality. If you're into motorcycles, they have motorcycles. If you're into Mickey Mouse, they Mickey Mouse things. Well, the first time that the quilt was laid down at Pauley Pavilion in um, 1989, I think. It was the size of a basketball court, and I laid down four panels. And my great friend, Hugh Hudson, um, who was the director who directed Chariots of Fire, who was making a movie with, at the end, I laid down four panels of my best friends, and I was crying in a fetal position on the quilt, and Hugh came down, saw him from the bleachers, and he said, put your anger and grief into something creative. You should make a documentary about this. And I listened to him, and I made this documentary, and it was very hard to get on, very, very hard to, to do it. But eventually, the directors... Uh, uh, Why that, was it hard to do it? Because in those days, AIDS was like a, a Dying mark of shame, and people were freaked out by it. Mm. And I tried to. to, to what p- year was this? 1988 or 89, when mm-hmm. I'm trying to raise the money for it, when I try okay. to get HBO. Um, and. Um, uh, was it hard to raise the money? Very, for it? very, very hard. But Rob uh, had directed the Milk documentary, which won an Oscar. Um, and they were very, very important documentary filmmakers, and I went to them. First I went to Bill Couturier, who did Letters from Vietnam, and he introduced me to Rob and Jeff, and then um, Rob and Jeff and I decided to make the movie. Rob who? Rob Epstein and Jeff Friedman. Okay. They have since won many Oscars. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And I made Celluloid Closet with them as well. And I made Paragraph 175 with them as well about gays in the Holocaust. Celluloid Closet about the history of gay and lesbian images in film, which is nominated for an Oscar, won us our second Peabody. Common Threads won us an Oscar and a a Peabody Peabody for Best Documentary. So um, we... Uh, through grants and through um, private equity and through foundations, we created enough of a sizzle reel to present it to HBO, and Sheila Evans and Michael Fuchs gave it the go-ahead, mm. and it was staggering. How long did it take to
0: film it, and how long was the quilt? And where we're, we're th- things were probably changing by the day, and new names were coming up, and new panels. I mean, tell us about that whole well, process. Well, the,
1: the quilt, when as I told you, it was the size of the Polar Pavilion in 1989. Mm-hmm. In 1994, it was spread out for the last time and shown in Washington, D.C., and it spread from the White House to the Washington Monument and back, 54 acres. Unbelievable. 60,000 panels. It's the biggest piece of artwork in the world and it's now stored in Atlanta, and they take sections of it out now. It's too big to show. Now, when you first saw it at Poly Pavilion... The size the time, of a basketball court.
0: Right, and then it was probably at least... 30, 40,
1: 50 times that size by the time it went to DC. 50, about 400 times that okay, size. So okay. And Cleve Jones was the one that started the Names Project, and he's a very important figure mm. in the annals of the uh, AIDS crisis. How long did it take to film the documentary? It took about six months, mm-hmm. you know, because we filmed the, 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 the various... Um, uh, exhibits of showing the documentary, of showing uh, the uh, AIDS quilt for unfurled both in Washington. And was there crying the, on the set? Crying. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Crying everywhere. I mean, the quilt is unfurled. It's a, there are tissue boxes everywhere.
0: What an experience it must have been, Howard, it was to the, film that.
1: The greatest experience of my life. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable because I've had, if you can believe this, 2,700 friends that died of AIDS. I mm-hmm. keep a list. And on that list is someone that I went to the movies with or had a meal with. And if mm-hmm. I wouldn't keep a list, I wouldn't remember them. And I went through about a hundred deaths personally. And it was devastating. No one understands what happened from 1990. We nin- forget, you uh, know. From, from 19, yeah. uh, 1980 to 1990 was the worst years ever. Mm-hmm. And no one remembers it now. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating. And it the was. deaths were brutal and they were quick. And I remember the day
0: that Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV, and my employees at the ad agency were just people freaking out yeah. because at the time we assumed that it was a death sentence. Right. And he caught it just at the end. Just
1: ad. in time. But now they have the, the, this protease inhibitor, uh, this medication that you take, um, and uh, it, uh, it's now HIV is like diabetes. You know, it's controllable. Thank God.
0: I want to segue into your storytelling uh, genius because one of the things I've really loved about you over the years is your ability to tell a story in, in a very compact way. And one of my favorites is this film that you've been working on for years. You seem to have these dreams that you have in film and, and they never go away and you end up making them, right? And this one was about a dog, right? And, and you mentioned it years ago. And now you're like almost there in the editing stage. So if you can just summarize for our listeners that
1: film. From 2000 to 2007, I taught a masterclass in creative film producing uh, under the auspices of the Jewish Federation of L.A., the Los Angeles-Tel Aviv Cultural Partnership, Tel Aviv University, and the Tech. First year I went with Susan Lando, which we created it, which is one of the greatest experiences of my life. Then Lynn Roth came in. Um, to teach with me, and then one of our students gave us this manuscript and we, in 2005, and we both read it, and um, we decided to, to, to make it. Um, it took me a long, long time. Lynn wrote the script, uh, uh, and it took me a long, long time to raise $2 million from uh, private Jewish equity. About 12 or 13 people Invested in the movie, one for two fifty, one for one fifty, one for a hundred. I made. The, we made the movie. I think for about two million. I'm still looking for about four hundred thousand dollars. Hint, hint, uh, hint. hint. <laughs> and um, uh, for every person that invested, I schmeichel if you know what that means. It's uh,
0: no clue. I'm Sephardic. Kissing we don't do ass. Yiddish. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> a universal idea. Forty
1: different people. So tell us the story. The story is about a German-Jewish family in Berlin in 1938. A father, a mother, a nine-year-old boy, a seven-year-old girl They have a German shepherd that they're madly in love with was fantastic. Then the Nuremberg Laws are passed. Jews could no longer own pets. It was the beginning of the marginalization and demonization of the Jewish people. So the father, in a very wrenching scene, has to give the dog away without his kids knowing it. And he's in love with the dog as well. So he gives it to the Gentile manager of his factory. But the Gentile's wife's an anti-Semite. She hates the dog so she contrives to throw the dog out on the street. The dog goes back to the apartment to find the family. They're already snatched by the Nazis. So the dog has to find a pack to learn how to run with to survive, which he does. Then the Nazis sweep up all the German shepherds, and they give our German shepherd to an SS officer who trains the dog and falls in love with the dog. And soon the dog is lifting his paw in a salute to Hitler. Then the Nazis made the Commandant of Treblinka at death camp. One day, a train comes in. On the train is now the nine-year-old boy. The dog sniffs the boy, runs to the train. There's a joyous reunion. The Nazi looks at this and says, I don't understand this. There's obviously a bond between you and this dog. You can feed him and train him. But if you take any of his dog food for you or your other Jewish cellmates, we'll punish you severely. One day, the dog is walking around the periphery of the camp, and he sees a hole in the electrified fence. Surreptitiously in the middle of the night, he gets the boy, they run through the hole into the forest, join the Russian partisans last scene a boat to Palestine. The boy gets on the boat, but they won't let the dog on the boat, but as the boat's going out, the dog jumps into the sea and they bring the dog onto the boat. I just saw the Rough cut a couple of days ago and uh, we're preparing it What's it called? Shepherd: a Tale of a German she- a tale of a Jewish dog in World War II
0: Wow. Wow, I can't wait to see it. When yeah. is the anticipated launch date? Well,
1: I don't know. It depends. It depends, yeah, what it depends who we sell it to. You know, okay. we may sell it to, who knows, Netflix, Hulu, a studio, a, you know, a production, who knows?
0: Well, you'll sell it to the Jewish Journal, that's for <laughs> sure.
1: And what other projects do you have on tap? I've just sold uh, four series. Um, I'm doing a. Uh, graphic novel called Violet Messiahs about the Illuminati. I'm doing uh, a series about uh, with my friend Phyllis Carlisle about two uh, Danish sisters uh, who were the daughters of an impoverished nobleman in 1880 in Denmark. Uh, and then the king of Denmark dies and their father is appointed King Christian IX of Denmark. The two sisters become the most eligible sisters in Europe. One marries Victoria's son, becomes the queen of England. One marries the Tsar of the Russians and becomes tsarina of the Russians, <laughs> and I'm telling all the stories of the, with Phyllis, of the uh, thrones of Europe from 1880 to 1945, all the descendants of Victoria, from the point of view of these two sisters. Then I'm doing a uh, feature that we sold to Greg Berlanti, about a Rock Hudson-like character um, has uh, a lover, a uh, double life, right? That yeah, he has a he has a male lover, and. Mm-hmm. Um, the studio creates another life for him. Mm. And so it's like a gay madman. It's like wow. within a world of artifice. There's another world of artifice.
0: You know what, what I find fascinating? How, how old are you? Well, I'm going to be 74 in February. It, it's like your career has never been on fire like it's been the past it's few incredible. years. It's, it's, I mean, it's a miracle. How does it feel that you know, normally people slow down in their it's a 70s? Miracle. I never want to slow down. I want to die on a movie set. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend of mine, Mike Bernstein, you know, he turned seven years old and he decided he wanted to be a director. He was an, like, an amazing actor his whole life, you know, and a great singer. He's like just a well-known guy. He's been on Broadway and everything. Out of the blue. You know, he writes a film and Listen, directs
1: it, and it was terrific. Hollywood is a place where you can reinvent yourself. I just want to give a shout-out to my friend Howard Franklin, who wrote the script A Man's Man, upon which the series that we sold to, to Greg Berlanti at uh, Warner Brothers is And what's made. the name of that series? A it's man's a, man. It's gone. A man's man. Yeah. And mm. if you see the documentary Scotty about uh, Scotty Bowers, who wrote a full service about all the um, gay stars like Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Randolph Scott and Tony Perkins who, who lived in Hollywood during those years.
0: Yeah, and what I also find fascinating, that, that doesn't seem to be ageism. <laughs> like, you there know? isn't
1: ageism for producers. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're, Obviously,
0: you know, and for actors, it's a different for story. For actors yeah.
1: and for writers and for um, directors. Directors mm-hmm. less, most for actors and then writers.
0: Unless your name is Paul Newman, right? Unless,
1: well, unless your name is Paul Newman. Well, there are a handful of movie stars that, that can right. transcend generations. No matter what.
0: But there are a handful. Right. How many are there? Exactly. 20? Exactly. Yeah. you know... You had, you know uh, Clint, is, Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Clint right? No with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, it doesn't you know. age. And yeah. then the women, Catherine Jack Nicholson. Hepburn, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. What has he done lately, though?
1: But he's yeah. now, that's at his own volition. He's, right. He turns down parts left and right. He does. App left and right. You know yep. him? Yes,
0: he's amazing, fantastic guy, <laughs> fantastic guy. Oh my God! But these films I grew up on them, you know, and five, Warren Beatty, Five, five Easy guys. Pieces. Yeah, they're fantastic guys. You know, they are. They were like legends, yeah. you know, Millers Crossing and Reds. Really? Right, they're still. You know, I saw
1: Bonnie and Clyde the other day. Hello. Night. Well, for, Warren Beatty, who's as talented as he? No one. Close your eyes. What do you see? There was... Remember the 70s? The, the, oh. the auteur, just the... Boy. Brian De Palma and all this... This Scorsese. The greatest. What if Francis Ford Coppola, the greatest movie ever made, The Godfather, one and two?
0: Well, you know, I, I, I've i always been fascinated by that because uh, Godfather comes out and it's like the masterpiece of the century, right? Up there, right up there with Citizen Kane and we say, oh my God, and it cleans up at the Academy Awards. And then... Godfather Two comes out, and everybody's thinking, "Oh no, don't do that! How do you, how do you meet, how do you follow up a masterpiece?" Right, and I think one of the greatest accomplishments in movie history was the fact that a sequel to a masterpiece is now arguably at least as good, if not better.
1: They say it's better. I think it's better. It's brilliant. When I see The Godfather, and I'm late at night and I can't sleep, and I'm trolling the stations, and The Godfather comes on. I stay up to watch it. I must have seen The Godfather both. about seventy-two times.
0: Both, both one and two. Yeah, both. yeah. Wasn't it kind of tragic how they screwed up Godfather
1: three? Yes, but you know, hey, you know, what do you Godfather gonna do? one and two? You know. Oh my God! But I saw a movie in nineteen seventy, which I should tell you about, called The Garden of the Finzi Continis. It was fantastic. One of the greatest movies ever made about a uh, very rich Jewish family. Dominique Sanda plays the sister. Helmut Berger plays the brother. They're very handsome. They live this incredible life in a bubble. Uh, Daimler's tennis whites, the greatest life ever, and then the, the um, racial laws are passed in Italy. They're going to Auschwitz the next week. And I remember Vittoria De Sica directed that movie. I remember I saw that movie in 1970 at the beginning of that whole era. This was a foreign movie, but independent. And I said to myself, wow, one day I'm going to make a movie like that. Wow. And funnily enough, Call Me By Her Name, which takes place in Milan in 1983, actually is the grandson of that movie because The Garden of the Finzi Contini takes place in Milan in 1938. Oh, my God. And it covers the same area, about an aristocratic Jewish family in 1938. And our movie, Peter Spears' and my movie and Luca Guagnino's movie, is about a aristocratic Jewish family in 1983
0: in Milan. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you feel, because you've reached such a peak with this film, how many awards around the world? 198 you know? awards. That's like... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You reach such a peak, and do you get these jitters like Godfather 2, for example, like for your next film? Do you feel like you have inflated
1: expectations? I must say, um, nothing will ever equal uh, Call Me By Your Name. I mean, it's a phenomenon in and of itself. Um, It's just a phenomenon. It's like lightning in a bottle. And uh, there are certain moments in life like this, like when the Eagles
0: did Hotel California. Yeah. You sort of say, you know, I love you. You're going to do great stuff, but I'm sorry. There's only one Picasso.
1: (laughs) There's only one Norea. There's only one Leonard Bernstein. It's once in a generation. Yeah. You know, um, And and, and call me by her name is like that because of Luca Guadagnino's genius and Andre Asiman's novel and Timothy Chalamet's acting. It all came together. You know, I mean, Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet, that's magic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that way. And every movie that I'm from now on will make, I hope it will achieve that heights, but it won't.
0: Right. This was some. Maybe I'll have one more.
1: Yeah, hopefully more <laughs> hopefully. than one. Yeah.
0: Anyways, on that note, Howard Rosenman, my good friend, thank you very much for coming into the Jewish Journal Studios. You can uh, download on iTunes the David Suisa podcast and hope to see you a lot more
1: often, Howard. Absolutely, Dave. You're my big hero. <laughs> so are you. <laughs>